You're listening to Away With Words, the show about language and how we use it. I'm Grant Barrett. And I'm Martha Barnett. A palindrome is a word or a sentence that can be read forwards and backwards, like race car, for example. Ah. Spelled the same way, mm-hmm. both ways. Do you have a favorite palindrome? Uh, no, but there was used to be a Twitter account called yeah. Palindrome Tweet. They stopped tweeting in 2010, but it's still a load of palindromic sentences they have there. Oh, like, cool. cigar, toss it in a can. It is so tragic. And that whole <laughs> sentence is a palindrome. That's fantastic. Or, wonton on salad? Alas, no, not now. <laughs> <laughs> Those are good. Yeah, they are. I think my all-time favorite used to be, sit on a pan, Otis. <laughs> but I have some new favorites now. Oh, I see. And these are from a contest run by one of the world's top palindrome writers, Mark Saltvite. How do we get that job? Uh, I oh, wait, I have to actually be interested in palindromes. <laughs> yeah, well, you can read his magazine, which is called The Palindromist. And uh, every year he offers the Oscars of palindromes. And um, there are a whole lot of categories this year, but I wanted to share a couple of them. These are from the short palindromes category, and I think you'll appreciate these. One thing that I like about these is that they all have titles. It's not just the palindrome, but a title to sort of help you understand. So here's one of the winners. It's Espresso Rescue. That's the title. Had a tonic? Cup of cappuccino. (laughs) Ta-da! That works, That's totally what happens with espresso, right? right? You're like, suddenly, I'm alive! (laughs) (laughs) Totally, for me. But here's my favorite. This one is called Election Dilemma. Okay. No one to vote no on. No one to vote no on. Right? Uh, Yeah. How many elections has that absolutely been true? (laughs) Every election. (laughs) I don't want to vote yes. I want to vote you suckers out. Let's leave the chair empty for a while. Well, I have lots more palindromes to share, but I will do that later in the show. And in the meantime, we'd love to hear your stories and thoughts and comments about language. Call us 877-929-9673 or send your questions about language to words at waywardradio.org. Hi, you have a way with words. Hi, Martha. It's Adriana Glover calling from Chula Vista, California. Welcome to the show. How you doing there? Yeah, what's going on in Chula Vista? um, So... A little bit of background. Um, I'm Mexican, um, fluent in English and Spanish. My husband is Creole, and I sort of not very diligently am attempting to raise my daughter bilingual. Um, So I didn't really expose her to, you know, 100% Spanish like some parents do. Um, She was around it, but not 100%. So um, now she's in dual immersion school, and recently I kind of had a moment where I'm like, oh, my gosh, I think she actually might start being bilingual. And so what happened was, you know, usually when somebody, you know, thinks in English, they'll, like, hurt themselves or drop something, and they'll say, oh, or they'll say, ah. Um, and so my daughter dropped something, and she said, ay. And I'm like, that's what I say when I'm thinking in Spanish. So I didn't know <laughs> if there was something to that, to say I and e. Um, when you drop something or make a mistake versus oh and uh, which is what I guess somebody would say in English. We could probably kind of predict the future for your daughter if she continues in this school. She probably will never be f- perfectly bilingual um, in both languages unless she gets complete immersion in both languages for long periods of time. Um, so it's cool. She's going to continue to do what she just did with when she dropped something on her foot or whatever it was that she did. She's going to keep borrowing from the most memorable parts, at least as far as her education and her life goes, from these different languages and using the term or expression that fits the circumstances and first pops into her head. And sometimes there's no rhyme or reason to that. And she'll slowly find that behavior modified by what you do and your husband does and what her classmates and her teachers do. And so she's going to develop this little kind of bilingual idiolect of her own where she, her bilingualism is going to be a little different 
um, than the person next to her because there's no such thing as like um, exact bilingualism where two people share exactly the same level of bilingualism unless they're in exactly the same circumstances. So, right, um, and even for me, I mean, English is still my strongest, but I still have a pretty darn good level of Spanish. Yeah, if you want to, if you want to really get her bilingualism to be strong, take her for a couple months in the summer to Mexico and just dump her right into the environment with family and That's friends. That's what they where, did to me. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, there we go. Worked, huh? It's a great yeah. model. I highly recommend it. And but the same also holds true for the English. If you want her to have that really strong English, she needs to spend a couple months each year in a completely English language situation with friends and family, people that she loves, um, and this kind of off and on of these two languages will keep reinforcing um, month in and month out. And your question was, was that moment when she said, I, rather than, uh-oh, yes. or something, was yes. that a sign of her Incipient emerging? Bilingual. Yeah, yeah little, I would think so. It is a or little bit, yeah. in Spanish. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, that was my experience when I lived with an Argentinian for many years. I would start to do things like that and without ado- thinking. You would adopt the behavior of the people around you, right? Yeah. Yeah. Is it true incipient bilingualism if you're using an interjection? I don't know. We do know that interjections are taught. They're not actually instinctive. You don't come out of the womb with these interjections. You learn them like you learn words. And so she learned this interjection from somebody who speaks Spanish. It could have been you. Yes, her mother. Oh, yeah, it was me. I'm I'm the queen of I and E. There we go. (laughs) Queen of I and E. I also thought it was interesting that, that number one, they're both vowels. And number two, like, why do you say O and uh Uh, in English mm -hmm. and I and E in Spanish? I don't know if you guys have that information or if it's just... There's, I don't know, more there's a lot been written on this, and yeah. we could spend way too long talking about it, but Charles Darwin actually was one of the people who wrote about this, and he talked about the natural fear response, for example, shapes the muscles of the face in such a way most humans will make the same fear response face that if they're issuing a sound from their mouth, it is likely to sound similar no matter where they are, what languages they speak. And this is oversimplifying, but generally that's true. So the fear response sounds do kind of tend to be the same in all the languages. The surprise response sound tends to be the same in all the languages, but they're modified by the lexical inventory that the person has at their disposal. And they're modified again by what they learn and hear from the people around them. Yeah, she's hearing her mom do yeah. that. So she's not. So I isn't some kind of gut instinct kind of thing that popped out of the the lizard part of her brain, you know. <laughs> it's nothing like that. It's I wouldn't uh, say lizard. I was thinking Mexican, but okay. <laughs> <laughs> no. I was just talking about that primitive part of us, that that part yeah, back, well, I, you that know, part that's still worried about the wolves, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I just thought it was it was I mean I was very pleased with it. I was very excited yeah. that she was, you know, because it's you have a split second to make a, a sound like that when right. you drop something there when Right. Something doesn't go your way, so I was I was very happy to see that it wasn't just oh, mommy wants me to translate red into rojo now, you know exactly. Right. And that's a really nice moment. I mean, it reminds me of the moment when they first learned to read. My son went through this, and the utter delight my wife and I had when my son just started to learn just reading because he wanted to. And you're like, oh yes, it's right. working, it's working. Right. Well, thank you so much. I love the show. Keep doing what you're doing, and I always have you a question too. when I hear the show. But I guess I'll have to pace myself. Well, Adriana, <laughs> thank you for calling and keep us up to date on how she's doing in the bilingual school, all right? Awesome. I will. Thank you so much. Take Thanks care for now. calling. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye. We'd love to hear your stories about your experiences with language and learning them. Call us, 877-929-9673, or send them an email to words at waywardradio.org. Hello, you have a way with words. Hi, I'm Nell Bedsoe from Alabama, and being raised in southeast Alabama most of my life, I heard uh, my mother and other women refer to 
children that were misbehaving as having hissy fits, but it was usually just with the females. I didn't ever, I don't ever remember uh, they saying, you know, the girl would be crying and just stubborn and everything, and I just wondered where that saying came from. Uh-huh. Nell, is it, from Alabama? Yes. Where in Alabama are you? I'm in Abbeville, A-B-B-E-V-I-L-L-E. Well, Abbeville, welcome okay. to the show, Nell. This is Thank an. Inter- you. I, I used this in my when I was growing up. Hissy fit, Martha. I'm oh, not, sure. I was raised in Missouri. Mm-hmm. You knew this in oh. Kentucky, then. Oh, Martha. it's just not southern, huh? Oh well, well it is mostly southern. Yeah, and Missouri is kind of a half and half state. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, I mean, yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, I was raised in Kentucky, but I guess that's uh, that's north of Alabama. So <laughs> I guess yeah, I'm sort of like. <laughs> do I sound like a Yankee to you? Yeah, a little. Uh-huh. But I heard you were um, in from Kentucky. Yeah. Get, get her tipsy and it really comes out. <laughs> <laughs> now, now. <laughs> yeah, so you're wondering about why anybody would say hissy fit or don't have a hissy fit or she had a hissy fit, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Yes. We suspect that maybe it's a form of hysterical. Oh. So a hysterical fit. Yeah. Crying and the and women always and... have that, don't they? The women? <laughs> it's very well, gendered. It's true. Oh, yeah. The word hysterical actually goes back to the Greek word for uterus. So, um, oh. Yeah. And Freud associated it with Right. Um, the assumption with... was that somehow women were prone to these fits because their uterus made them so. Something like that. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So so most likely it's connected to hysterical and it and it you know, has that hissing sound to it mm-hmm. yeah. as well. So you can yeah. see how hysterical fit could be turned into hysteric fit. And mm-hmm. if you didn't quite understand it or know the word hysteric, it might sound a little bit mm-hmm. like hissy. Well, I, I listen to the radio a lot. And on one of the talk radio shows that I listen to, they are advertising well, uh, in a town about 30 miles away from me, a, huge, a town a lot larger than what I live, and they called it the Hissy Fit Boutique. They they used, they didn't, they, it was just one word, and it's a boutique down there. And I thought, well, I've got to call, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this, you know, here it is popping out all over, and I want to know how. Hmm. And everything, but I did. Uh, when mother would say she's having a hissy fit, I'd look, and it, of course it was a she. And the boys, they could fight and everything, but the girls just screaming, you know. Isn't that interesting? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. and did you sense that it was sort of a funny word or sort of yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. like not necessarily that um, that serious? Yeah, uh-huh. yeah. In other words, you, you know, don't pay any attention to it. She mm-hmm. just. Just you know, a, hissy a hissy fit. fit. Right. Merely a hissy fit. Some folks, by the way, will just say hissy. She's having a hissy mm-hmm. without without adding the fit. Oh, well, I'm glad we're not the only ones that do that no, down it's, here. It's pretty widespread. <laughs> it's mainly Southern. The first yeah. uses pop up in Texas in the 1930s, although it's certainly older than that. Yeah. So what do Yankees call it, I wonder? Well, you know, just might pitch a fit. Pitch a or fit. Or throw a pitch fit. A yeah. 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 Without the hissy in there. But I, I like the hissing sound in there. Yes. Mm-hmm. Nell, you are a delight. We appreciate your calling. Thank you. Thank y'all, and, and keep the good work up. I enjoy it. Oh, it's our pleasure. Bye-bye now. Okay. Bye. Well, if you're like Nell, and there's something you came across that just will not leave your brain, come drop it on us. 877-929-9673. Email words at waywardradio.org. <laughs>
We were talking earlier about palindromes, and um, there are also word unit palindromes. What's that? A word. That's unit. when all the words read back and forth rather than the letter, just the letters. Ah, Do you know I see. what I mean? Mm-hmm. For example, here's one called "Cold Feet at the Altar." Say I do. What do I do? What do I say? Ah, if you read that backward, right. word by word, it works the same way. We talk about more than palindromes on this show. Anything related to language, linguistics, speaking, and writing, give us a call, 877-929-9673, or send an email to words at waywardradio.org. How is the language that your family uses connected to the larger history of English? Find out as Away With Words continues. Hey, we've got something special for those of you who love our show but could do without the ads. That's right. Imagine away with words, the same engaging conversations, the same deep dives into language without advertising interruptions. We're talking about our ad-free podcast feed. It's sleek, clean, and it's just for our supporters. It's at waywardradio.org slash ad-free. It's inexpensive easy to sign up for, and works with all major podcast apps like Apple Podcasts and Spotify. It's an affordable way to support the show and get a seamless listening experience. And if you're feeling generous, why not give a subscription to another Away With Words fan? That's waywardradio.org slash adfree. Sign up today. Your support means the world. waywardradio.org slash adfree. Thank you. You're listening to Away With Words, the show about language and how we use it. I'm Grant Barrett. And I'm Martha Barnett. And joining us on the line from New York City is our quiz guy, John Chinesky. Oh, hey, John. Hello, John Hello Grant and Martha. Here What's I up, am. Buddy? Yeah, here in New York City. Did you guys see Frozen? Yes, I did. No, yeah. I haven't seen it yet. Yeah, the Disney oh, movie. you should see it. Yeah, I, I really liked it a lot. It was great. The music was fantastic. I actually I actually met the uh, composers, uh, Bobby Lopez and Kristen Anderson Lopez oh, nice. the other day. Yeah, they're they're super great. I liked the song Fixer Upper. Do you remember that song, Grant? Uh, no. Upper. How does it go? Uh, he's a bit of a fixer-upper. It's when the uh, the yes, trolls right. are trying to fix up Anna and Kristoff because mm-hmm. they're sort of his uh, his parents, and they're sort of trying to they extol his his, his bad virtues because they're trolls. Say, well, what the trolls say, they say how ter- how he smells and how he's uh, he's he looks to this and to that, and they say, well, maybe the way to to fix him is to fix him up with you, which is great. Right. It's just a sweet mm. song. Now it occurred to me that maybe they might have better luck if they had stressed other kinds of things that Kristoff could have been. That's sort of going around a ways to find a concept for a puzzle, but here it is. <laughs> Instead of a fixer-upper, maybe he's played a key defensive position on the kingdom of Arendelle's baseball team. You know, he's a bit of a center fielder. You know, maybe that would have worked better. Okay. So, two words. Each er. one ends in E-R. Er, okay. er. That's, er, that's okay. what I Yeah, there we go. That's why I went, I went all out and called this puzzle blanker blanker. Okay, okay there we Not go. Not fixer-upper, but blanker blanker. Okay, here's our first one. You know, maybe Anna wants children and would be impressed to hear that Kristoff is a state-certified caregiver who takes minors into his home. He's a bit of a... Foster father. A yes, foster he's father. a bit of a foster oh, father. Very it. good. Okay. okay, this one will work. Maybe Anna is concerned about radiation. 
it might come in handy that Christoph begins to click whenever there's radiation about. A Geiger, Geiger counter. counter. <laughs> He's a bit of a Geiger counter. He's a bit of a Geiger counter. So you want that guy around, yeah. Well, look, we're open-minded. Maybe she likes a guy who rebels against typical male-female societal roles. Gender bender? Yeah, he's a bit of a gender bender. Why not? Anna probably wants a guy who's employable, right? Well, Christoph can write code. He knows Java, C++, Perl, and Visual Basic. He can get an IT job easy. He's a bit of a... He's a bit of a computer programmer. Yes, very good. He's a bit of a computer programmer, so good for him. Maybe Anna wants a guy who's at the center of everything. He, he may not be the queen of Arendelle, but he's the guy who divides up all the political influence among the ruling class. Um, Gee whiz. Oh. What's another word for influence? Power, power broker. broker. Yes, he's a bit of a power broker. Nice. Now, government work is very secure. Christoph is really good with that sled. Maybe he can make sure the mail gets through on time every day. Something. Oh, by the way, not all of these are two-syllable two syllable words. Like Something deliverer? No. <laughs> this, is, this is what my dad was for 40 years. Letter 40 carrier. Years. Oh, letter yes. carrier. He's all a bit right. of a letter carrier. Good. Now, maybe what's most important to Anna is his attitude. Maybe she will like that Kristoff is always up for anything and totally throws himself into anything she suggests, sort of like a, an animal with a strong work ethic. Eager beaver. Yes, he's a bit of an eager beaver. Hey, look, when times get really hard, when winter hits and they can't grow crops, someone has to go out and get food somehow. Kristoff still has all those primitive skills. He'll keep them fed. Hunter-gatherer. Yes, he's a bit of a hunter-gatherer. Now, let's face facts. You never know when that sister of hers will make it snow. It may win Anna over to know that Kristoff is particularly skilled at meteorology. Weather, weather forecaster. forecaster. Yes, he's a weather forecaster. Now, you know what? I, I hate to do this, but maybe Anna should find another guy. It, it seems that Kristoff is not what he seems. He seems strong and powerful, but in the end, he can't stand up to a challenge. Uh, hmm. Let's see. These are harder than I thought. Yeah, yeah really. Um, it's a very lighthearted quiz, but uh, there's a pretty strong... Something so he's, quitter? He's, was he... No, this is a we phrase can... that means, here, let's say a phrase that means someone who seems very powerful and uh, and can fight, but in the end, it just crumples. Oh, um, paper tiger. Oh, yes, very good. Very good. He's a very bit of good. a paper tiger. And that is our blanker, blanker quiz. Go see Frozen, Martha. <laughs> I, I, yeah, I'm it's, an eager beaver. It's yeah. one of the better Disney movies in a long time. Some yeah, really great really performances um, musically. It's got an ending which is outside the usual Disney kind of paradigm. Um, a little bit of the same stuff. Love will save the day, but still, right. still a good movie. Okay, I'll see you guys next time. Okay, great. Thanks a lot, John. We'd love to hear your stories about language. Call us, 877-929-9673, or send them an email to words at waywardradio.org. And if you just can't wait, find us on Facebook and Twitter. Hello, you have a way with words. Hi. Hello, who's this? This is Rabia. Hi, Rabia. Where are you calling from? I'm calling from Richmond, Virginia. Welcome to the show. How can we help you? Oh, well, I've been thinking of this um, word, and um, I thought I would give you guys a call about it. So my question is about the word Google, and I wanted to know that if this word existed, uh, the pre-internet era, and if so, what was the meaning of this word at that time? 
And, you know, I did Google the word Google, and <laughs> I could not really find a clear-cut answer about, about this, so I just wow. thought I'd give you guys a call. You know, it involves a couple of different stories. First of all, it involves a professor at Columbia named Edward Kastner, who back in the 1940s wrote a book called Mathematics and the Imagination. It's a book that is written for a lay audience, and in fact, it was so popular that it became a bestseller. And, um, really? Yeah, and it's, it's a fun book. It's actually easy to read, and it's got a lot of humor in it. But one of the things that he mentions in that book is that he was trying to think of a, num- of a name for a really big number, like 10 to the 100th power, which is one with 100 zeros behind it. And he was, Oh, wow. Yeah, he was, okay. he was trying to come up with a word for this really big number. And so he turned to his nephew, who was about eight or nine years old, his nephew Milton and said, what should I call this number? And the little boy thought for a little bit, and then he said, call it Google. And oh, really? Yeah, but he spelled it G-O-O-G-O-L, which I think is a great word for uh, a number with all those zeros. So then fast forward to 1997, and the guys uh, at Stanford University who had just come up with this uh, great search engine that they were developing further um, mm-hmm. They were trying to come up with a name for that, and the original name for it was Backrub, if you can believe it. <laughs> really? Backrub. Backrub? Yeah, that was the original name for this search engine because they had this great idea of using backlinks from websites to rank the websites. And so they were calling it Backrub, and they thought, no, we need a better name for this. And so mathematicians had adopted the word Google and also used the word Googleplex, which is an infinitely, almost infinitely. So that's Google to the power of Google? 10 to the power of Google. Oh, 10 to the power of Google. Which is just this insanely large number. So one of them suggests the number Googleplex, and they said, no, it's pretty good. But but then they shortened it to Google and apparently misspelled it when they were registering (laughs) the domain name. But um, it stuck. Yeah. Now, there is, one, oh. there is one other Google, though, right? You mean googly eyes? Well, Barney Google? Well, I'm thinking of the cricket Google. The cricket Google? Yeah. The, I don't know the cricket Well, Google. the cricket googly. So, do you, Ravi? Oh, the googly. Yes, I'm aware of that. Yeah, so you follow cricket? I'm aware of the googly in cricket because I do oh, watch that cricket. Ca- oh, I thought, <laughs> <laughs> I thought he meant the insect. <laughs> no, no. But you mean the game. Okay, Yeah, of so course. to throw yes. a googly right. is to Google, and, and they're unrelated, right. but I thought it worth right. mentioning here. So <laughs> can you tell us what a, a googly is and, and cricket? Yes, please it's explain a, it's it. A speci- so, you know, uh, you play cricket with a bat and a ball. So it's a specific type of way you throw the ball towards a bat. So it's a it's a... It's a style of bowling, basically. Mm-hmm. And so it, the ball yes. breaks in a certain way, right? It kind of like does this little dip or something? It's hard to describe, but let me tell you this. This style of bowling was in, invented by a bowler from Pakistan, mm-hmm. and, uh, and I'm from there. So that's how uh, I know about ah, it. Okay. Very good. I thought it was worth mentioning this other googly, and so if somebody throws a googly, they are a googler, but it's not yeah, related. Yeah, different but google. Different google. <laughs> so complicated uh, history yeah. here. Yeah. Interesting. The short version is that Google, uh, spelled G-O-O-G-O-L, is the name of a huge number. Mm-hmm. And uh, the search mm-hmm. engine is spelled a little bit differently. Yeah. So how about that? Well, it sounds good. So now I know. Okay. Thank you. Well, we're really glad you called, Ravia. Thank you so much. All right. Take okay. care now. Take Bye-bye. care. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye-bye.
I think that there's a whole world of questions that we can answer about English, Martha. Indeed. <laughs> we'll just Google it. Yeah, we'll just, maybe we should give people our phone number so they can call with their questions. Oh, that's a good idea. Let's see. How about 877-929-9673? That's the number to call to talk with us on the air. Or you can send us an email. That address is words at waywardradio.org. And we are all over Facebook and Twitter. Here's another winning palindrome from the contest run by The Palindromist. The Palindromist. The magazine at palindromist.org. And uh, this one also has a title, and it's a word unit palindrome. It's called The Difference Between My Boss and My Therapist. Doors open to forward maneuvering. Past my inbox. Remember to work, she says. Now focus. Focus now, says she. Work to remember. Box in my past, maneuvering forward to open doors. Whoa, that is totally great. Isn't that beautiful? Yeah. So I assume that they come up with the title after they come up with the palindrome. I think so, yeah, <laughs> to kind of explain it. <laughs> Do you have a favorite palindrome? Maybe like, go hang a salami, I'm a lasagna hog? Call us, 877-929-9673, or send it an email to words at waywardradio.org. Hello, you have a way with words. Hi there. My name's Ken. I'm calling from um, the bucolic, quiet corner of Connecticut, Ashford, Connecticut. <laughs> the quiet, bucolic corner of Connecticut. Which corner is that? The northeast, <laughs> northwest? The official quiet corner is the northeast. It's also the last green valley where from space you cannot see any lights from like just south of Worcester to just down to about Mystic, Connecticut. Wow, that that does sound bucolic. I'm surprised as close as Connecticut is to the metropolis. No light pollution, huh? It's a rural area. It's, you know, there's like 4,000 people, 4,500 people in the town. Okay, Okay. not much to do, so you called us, huh? Well, for quite a long time now, I've had uh, some angst about the use of the word persons when the word people would seem to be the more appropriate choice. So, um, you know, for example, uh, I've always wondered why Barbara Streisand then didn't sing persons, persons who need persons are the luckiest <laughs> persons in the world, you know, if that were correct. Mm-hmm, and point. I've spent a lot of time in, like, church settings. Uh, I work for a major deity here in um, northeast Connecticut. A major deity, <laughs> did you say? Yeah. What? You're an insurance company? You're an what? ordained minister, or you work for an insurance company? Which which is it? <laughs> I, I I do both. Oh, okay. <laughs> All right. Historically, historically, I worked for. Uh, I've been ordained since 1980. Okay. But but um, I ran away from the church about seven years ago. I'm on my way back mm-hmm. recently, but um, you know, I'm sort of a missionary. Uh, to the insurance company. As a minister, you were talking about persons versus people. Well, yeah. And so in the church, you know, they were in the, in like in the seventies, they were sort of, you know, sort of being hip and they'd say folk. They talk about the folk, the church folk. And Mm -hmm. then they got a little in the eighties and into the nineties and right up to now, they're using things like persons. Would the persons who are going to be baptized come forward? Would the persons who are going to join the church please come forward? And in liturgy and in writing, I've seen this frequently, and every time I see it or hear it, it's like, it's like, you know, nails on a chalkboard to me. Mm -hmm. Because, and so, so, um, about 10 years ago, 
I wrote to Gina Barreca, who is a professor of English at the University of Connecticut, and uh, a, a neat person and a personality. And she has a little column in the uh, great metropolitan newspaper here in, in, in Hartford. And I said to her, Gina, what's up with this persons versus people thing? And, and all she did was write back saying, if persons were correct, the Constitution would begin, we the persons. Mm-hmm. And so, but that didn't answer my question. And so I thought maybe since you folks had a way with words, yes. you could help me. That's so interesting. I hadn't heard it used in in connection I, with the church. I'm surprised, really, given what we yeah. know about persons typically being corporate and kind of legalese. Yeah, and legalese. Kind of, kind of official sounding, mm-hmm. kind of authority based. Well, church. <laughs> uh, I mean, yeah, that, I guess you, you might. in elevators, you know. Yeah. This elevator holds 13 persons. Right. Elevators. That's a good example. And and persons is a bit more formal and, as Grant said, specialized. You know, you think about the missing persons mm-hmm. bureau and mm-hmm. that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, but otherwise, people is a much more natural use, I mm-hmm. think. Um, there was a quote-unquote rule that was floating around for a while that, that said that if you could count the number of people in the group, then you should use persons if it's a really small number, you know, like there are five persons at the bus stop. Um, but but that was a really, manufactured rule yeah, that was really, very, yeah. rarely embraced and, and probably never really caught on. Yeah, it's one of those things that has to do with just the native ear and the feel, and, and, and I'm completely with you on this, Ken. The adaptation of the, of the legalese, I think, is a piece of it, as I've come to understand it. But another thing, to me, it just sounds snooty. <laughs> I don't know. Mm-hmm. It just sounds a little stuffy. You know? Yeah, yeah, a little bit too lofty for the context. So, Ken, I think that you should stand up in the middle of a service and just say, you know what? Moses didn't say, let my persons go. <laughs> right? Oh, I, I think, I think that, that would work. Let my persons go, in, yes. Into this bucolic valley, valley that you just yes. got. Yeah. <laughs> Ken, thank you well, so that, much for calling. Well, it was, it was fun talking to you. Have a great day. I'll All take right. care now. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Do you have a linguistic bee in your bonnet? Give us a call, 877-929-9673, or send your questions and comments about language to words at waywardradio.org. Grant, I have some slang for you. Do you know what a Hollywood entrance is? Um, is this where you do like Kramer on Seinfeld and slam open the door and stand there for a second to make sure everyone's looking? <laughs> That's a good guess. And it's not Jennifer Lawrence going up the stairs. A Hollywood entrance is something that squeeze freaks would talk about. Does that help? Ah, squeeze freaks? Squeeze nope, freaks. that makes it even more mysterious. Okay. I have no idea. These two bits of slang are from a fantastic article by Burkhard Bilger on extreme cavers. That's a made-up name, right? No, no, I've, I've <laughs> met him Bill- before. Oh, okay. Extreme <laughs> cavers. Yes, he's a writer for The New Yorker, and there is an absolutely fantastic article, and you can read it online. And uh, a Hollywood entrance is the kind of entrance to a cave that 
looks like something like maybe from the King Kong movie. Okay. Um, Mammoth Cave in Kentucky has a Hollywood entrance. It's really big, as opposed to a little bitty one someplace. Right, that like you a, have to... a cleft that you almost can't find. Right, right, yeah. right, covered with brush and all that. A Hollywood entrance. And squeeze freaks are extreme cavers who really like going through those narrow, narrow passages. Oh, wow. Isn't that I, great? I did that once when I was in college in Missouri, and I don't think I ever want to repeat it again. It's scary, right? I don't think I could, given my new girth. <laughs> I thought maybe once you explained that it was related to caving, the first thing that uh-huh. came to mind that maybe it was this the a bunch of people abseiling down all at once down and descending down to a cave, just like rapidly oh, descending together. <laughs> just like they do in movies. It's always like right. the team is in perfect <laughs> sync and yeah. they all come down and they leap off the rope and the guns are at the ready and they go after the bad guy. <laughs> no, it's <laughs> it's just the, the cave It's like itself. the stereotypical cave entrance, like right. you might see in a, like a, a cartoon. Yeah, yeah, like the Flintstones or something. But I highly, highly, highly okay. recommend this article. The article again the, is? It's in the New Yorker online. And the author is? Burke Card Bilger. Bilger, B-I-L-G-U-R? G-E-R. G-E-R, great. Yeah. I'll look for that. It's yeah, it's little, one of the best articles I've read in a while. a load of slang in it that I need to get, yes. right? Yes, absolutely. We'd love to hear about the weird slang from your hobby or profession and the thing you do when you're not at work, 877-929-9673, or email us, words at waywardradio.org. More stories about what we say, how we say it, and why we say it. Stay tuned. You're listening to Away With Words, the show about language and how we use it. I'm Grant Barrett. And I'm Martha Barnett. Every once in a while, we have a call that just opens the floodgates, and we get all kinds of emails in response to it, all kinds of... What did I do uh... now? (laughs) What was it? No, no, no. You can rest assured that it it wasn't you this time, Grant. It was um, a call that we had from a guy who was a little bit uncomfortable with using the word proud. Ah, uh, yes, that? I do remember that. He had a problem with saying that he was proud of somebody else for their achievements. Right. As if it was condescending or he was stealing their thunder. Yeah, he wasn't quite sure if that fit. Right. Should he be saying that about other people or right. did it like divert the power dynamic mm-hmm. to him and away from them? Mm-hmm. And boy, we heard from all kinds of listeners about this. Celia Morris wrote to say, the man who called in about having difficulty saying I'm proud of you is my new hero. I know exactly what he means. I can't bring myself to say I'm proud of you either. It seems to make the situation about me rather than you. Ah. And Julianne Sands wrote, I was taught that saying I'm proud of you was almost impolite. It insinuates that I am judge and jury. The correct delivery would be, you should be very proud of yourself. And Pat Colston from Danbury, Connecticut, wrote to say um, that maybe we should say something like, I'm so thrilled that you and your work are recognized or you have every right to feel proud of what you've accomplished. Right. She turns the pride back onto the the person who did the thing. Yeah. Mm, And so now I'm thinking, I mean, I... It always felt a little strange to me, but so many people responded to that. And did they all tend to go of, they, in that direction? They all kind of concurred that saying that you were proud of somebody, there was something wrong with that. Not everybody, hmm. but I would say the majority of people did. Interesting. Yeah. Well, we'll still take your calls and your emails about whether or not you can actually say you're proud of someone without sounding condescending. Give us a call, 877-929-9673. And, you know, we talk about all things related to language here. Call us or email with those, too. Words at waywardradio.org. Hello, you have a way with words. 
Hi, uh, this is Vince from Dallas. Hey, Vince. Hey, what's up? How y'all doing? Good enough. Good enough. You? I'm doing well. Well, I had this this roommate who was Chinese, and you know, I, I'd always hear him talking on the phone with his mom, and you know, they, they spoke Mandarin. And also, I had this guy that lived lived across the hall from us. He spoke Cantonese. Um, when they spoke to each other, you know, they spoke they spoke in English. So I was I was you know, I, I had different people about that, and you know, they're saying it's different dialects of Chinese or whatever. So, what's the difference between a dialect and like a completely different language? Uh, when we talk about Chinese, it's actually kind of a mistake. We talk about it as if it's one language. And really what you've got is a lot of languages and dialects in the same geographic region, some which are completely not mutually intelligible. They, they just do not, speakers of them do not understand each other. And others where there's some mutual intelligibility because they're adjacent to each other and they haven't changed that much over time. But they share a writing system. The writing system was kind of foisted upon these languages throughout the country. So even languages that aren't all that well suited to the Chinese script use it. And this is the problem wow. when we talk about Chinese dialects. Some of them are utterly different. They're systematically, syntactically, morphologically different. And some of them are very similar. They'll have 30, 40% shared vocabulary, same kind of syntax, da-da-da-da-da. And that would explain why your friend and the guy across the hall didn't understand each other. So, oh, okay. so, so here's here's where we get into the explanation of dialects versus uh, languages. A language, well, there's the old joke which we have to talk about. Max Weinreich said that a um, a language is a dialect with an army and a navy. Mm -hmm. So a lot of the reason that a language is called a language is because it belongs. It is officially endorsed by government or the organized body that runs a country, and so it has nationalism at the base of it. It has uh, geopolitical power or boundaries to it, and it's things that have nothing whatsoever to do with linguistics. It's about the social forces which promote that particular variety, which might be a better term than dialect, promote that language variety to the fore so that it's taught in the schools, used in government discourse, and in the government papers. And mm -hmm. that's what makes it a language. A language is, in many ways, a political term and not so much a linguistic term or a technical term. Yeah, I mean, think about English. You have American English, Australian English, mm -hmm. Irish English. And yet, some people might argue that English is really just a dialect of German, mm -hmm. right? And maybe it's just kind oh. of got too big for its britches because it now belongs really to these other countries. Dialect. Yeah, a really yeah. big dialect. <laughs> and so a lot of it is about your perspective. It's kind of like talking about when does the day end and the night begin? That's a you great know, analogy. what does dusk yeah. look like? I mean, dusk is indefinable. I can't really put the... I know that I'm in the middle of dusk, but I couldn't tell you when it started or when it ended. Is it when the stars come out that it ends, or does it does it begin when the sun goes below the horizon? It's kind of hard to say. Languages... So a language versus dialect. What is the gradation? How much intelligibility does there need to be between two varieties so that they're, can, they can be called dialects? And if they are dialects, which one's the superior dialect? Which one is the parent? What do you think about that? That's a lot more thorough explanation than I've ever been given. Let me recommend uh, a resource to you that will explain this in kind of academic terms, but you seem like you'll probably get it. Um, there's this website we refer to often on the show called Language Log. It's where a lot of uh, really top linguists from around the world contribute their thoughts on current language development and current study of the, that they're doing and their peers are doing. And there's a fellow by the name of Victor Mayer, M-A-I-R, who um, is perfectly, he studies, he knows a great deal about Asian languages and about English, and I even think some German. And he often writes on Language Log about these very issues, about the politics of Chinese and uh, um, the way Chinese people speak 
speak English and English people speak Chinese and translating back and forth and the different kind of problems that you encounter. Look for his name, Victor Mayer, M-A-I-R, on Language Log, and just kind of browse his, his posts on Chinese, and I think you'll really start to understand some of what we were talking about here today. Thank you all so much. You did a great job. Our pleasure, Vince. <laughs> thank, you for a, a, thank you for a really interesting question. Yeah, I mean, great question. The answers only come when somebody asks us the, something really kind of revealing about language as a whole. Say hi to your roommate. Well, <laughs> yeah. Okay. All right. Take care. Now. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Ben. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. We want to hear your thoughts and stories about language. Call us at 877-929-9673 or send those emails to words at waywardradio.org. One theory of language suggests that there should be a word for every concept. Uh-huh. We'll never get there. Right. But I found a word or a phrase for a concept. If you take an eight and a half by 11 sheet of paper yep. and fold it in half yep. and then fold it in half again, again. do you know okay. what it's called? Um, a folded piece of paper. <laughs> well, a quarter fold, maybe. Quarter, but it's yeah. also called a French fold, which I did not a know. French fold. Yeah, and I don't know why. Oh, I thought that would be how you make your bed or something. <laughs> French fold. Yeah. Well, French, usually in English, when we have terms with the word French, it's usually yeah. naughty, except for well, French dry cleaning. But <laughs> right, right. Or the other people's, yeah. Yeah, other huh. people's, yeah. But it's called a French fold. I so that's a quarter why. folded sheet of paper. Huh. Who knew? Yeah, who knew that? What did you just learn that you want to share with everybody? 877-929-9673. Email words at waywardradio.org. Hello, you have a way with words? Hi, this is Susan from San Antonio, Texas. Hi, Susan. Welcome to the show. Hello, Susan. What's cooking? Hello. How are you doing? Good. What can we help you with? So I am a chemistry professor, and I frequently encounter a compound called phthalate, mm-hmm. which is spelled P-H-T-H-A-L-A-T-E. And it's, it has a lot of related compounds, things like phthalic acid, um, phenolphthalene, and naphthalene. Mm-hmm. And this is the first time I'd encountered a word that has P-H-T-H right next to each other. Uh-huh. So I was wondering if you could tell me where that came from or if there are other words that have that combination. Ooh. Yes, there sure are. I mean, part of what you're dealing with there is that so many words in chemistry come from ancient Greek, right? Mm-hmm. There are actually several words, uh, a handful of words in English that have that same PHTH combination. Um, I don't know if you wear glasses, but if you did, you got them from your ophthalmologist, right? Oh, that's true. Yeah. Yeah. Ah. yeah. It's just not that uncommon in ancient Greek to have the uh, P-H-T-H right next to each other. It's the letters phi or phi, like in phi, beta, kappa, and theta, which is, you know, the, the oval with the line across it, ah. phi and theta. Yeah. You have in English ophthalmologist, you have, uh, actually the Greek word for leather is diphthera, which um, gave us the word diphtheria. Diphtheria is the way you pronounce it because um, part of the characteristics of that disease is that you get sort of a leathery membrane in your Mm -hmm. throat. So diphtheria comes from the Greek word for leather. And then uh, in linguistics, we have diphthong, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. which is from Greek words that mean two voices. Two voices. Yeah. So, Susan, what words are you encountering it in? There's a class of compounds that are called phthalates. Phthalates, okay. Mm-hmm. And so what do you it's, kind of, it's kind of at the beginning of the word. What are they known for? What are their What are their primary properties? What do we What would we know well, about them as non non specialists? My guess is that the original 
name that it came from was naphthalene. Mm-hmm. Um, and naphthalene is a compound that was um, you can isolate from oil and gas, but it's the compound that's in mothballs. Ah, okay. uh, sure, yeah. Right. That's where people might know it from, yeah. Yeah, so that puts us on another path. We know that naphtha's got some roots in a variety of ancient languages mm-hmm. related to tar, bitumen, things like that, black sticky substances, and goes yeah. back probably as far back as the written record goes, right? Yep, yep, uh, related, way back. Wait, wait, because uh, it was one of those things that was recorded, and remember that the first writing isn't love letters, it's inventories. <laughs> <laughs> <Right>. Inventories <laughs> of, like, supplies. Right. <laughs> So it goes way, way back there. And that's yeah. pretty cool yeah. that we've got this root in modern English words that goes back thousands of years. Thousands, yes. Now, one of the questions our students often have is how you pronounce that, because sometimes people just abbreviate the PH as a P. Mm-hmm. So they would mm-hmm. say naphthalene as mm-hmm. opposed to naphthalene. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I could see people easily leaving out that H. Yeah, yeah. Just like an amphitheater instead of amphitheater. Yeah, yeah. Mm. That one's gaining yeah. ground, so I wouldn't be too much of a stickler about it. All right. Cool, Susan. Give us, drop us a <laughs> well, line sometime, all right? Thank all you. Right. Helium, neon, and argon walk into a bar, and the yeah. bartender says, hey, we don't serve noble gases here. They show no reaction. <laughs> 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 terrible stuff. Oh, Terrible. <laughs> terrible. <laughs> I'm sure there's more. You you look like you have more. A neutron walks into a bar, <laughs> orders a gin and tonic, and asks the bartender how much. The bartender replies, for you, no charge. Oh, gosh. <laughs> <laughs> Terrible stuff. 877-929-9673. Email words at waywardradio.org. Here's another palindrome. This is a word unit palindrome, meaning it's word by word Mm -hmm. rather than the letters going back and forth. This was a winner from last year's palindrome contest. And I should say that you can find all these winners at uh, palindromist.org. This one is untitled, and it's a word unit palindrome. You swallow pills for anxious days and nights, and days anxious for pills swallow you. Ooh, Ooh, right? Yeah, that's some serious stuff there. (laughs) That's vivid. Call us with your language questions, 877-929-9673. Hello, you have a way with words. Good morning, this is Brian Moore. I'm calling from Fairview, Texas. Hi, Brian. Welcome to the show. What's up? Well, I've got an expression that my dad used to use, and I don't know where it came from or to whom it refers, but the expression was, when he was adamantly opposed to something, he would say something to the effect of, I don't care if it hair-lips the queen. I don't care if it hair-lips the queen? Exactly. Hmm. And okay. so this is a defiant statement, right? <laughs> yes. Interesting. There's a lot to be said about this. Yeah. Two questions for you, though, Brian. One, did okay. you ever ask him where he got it, what he meant, what he was up to when he was saying that? I did not. Did he kind of have that wink or that gl- glistening eye, the twinkle that showed that he was being funny or ironic? Uh, more so than adamantly opposed. Okay, very okay. good. So it's not like he standing in front of a judge in a court saying, I protest, <laughs> Your Honor. <laughs> no, as a matter of fact, my dad was an attorney. Ah, there we go. Okay. okay. All right. Well, this particular expression, the best part of it, when we get to digging out kind of the whole story here is the verb to hair lip Mm -hmm. and in case people aren't really familiar because it's apparently less common than it used to be 
A hair lip on a person is when you are born with this congenital defect of the upper lip, usually around the philtrum. That's that little divot between the two sides of your upper lip, like under the nostrils. Um, there's a There's a split there, and usually it's corrected very early on in someone's life now with surgery, and there's a, 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 if there's a scar at all, it's almost invisible. But it looks just like the split lip of the, the hair, the animal, you know, the little bunny-like creature with the long ears and the fluffy tail that eats grass. Right, so it's H-A-R-E oh. rather than yeah. H-A-I-R. Well, I've never actually, never actually connected that congenital defect with an actual animal's lip. Yeah, and the story about why they call it a hair lip, besides it looks like that, well, not the story, but part of the thing is there used to be a superstition in Ireland and some other countries that if a woman who was pregnant saw a hair out and about, that she was more mm-hmm. likely to have a child with a hair lip. And in really? some places, if a woman saw any kind of animal, her, her child was likely to be born looking like that animal. So stay away <laughs> from the horses, I guess. Mm. Um, and so what we find then that this is associated with also a little bit with the devil and some other superstitions. The hair was known as an animal that um, brought bad fortune. And it's kind of the opposite of the lucky rabbit's foot, which is really interesting to me. And so over mm. time, the hair has just generally taken on this kind of negative aspect. So when you talk about hair lipping somebody, you are wishing them right. ill will. You're wishing that they have this physical defect on their body. But it's not just the queen who got this message. I mean, I've got a whole, I mean, you can dig this out for yourself, um, but hair lips the president, hair lips every dog in Texas, hair lips every cow in Texas, hair lips the state of Texas, (laughs) hair lips the pope, hair lips the nation, hair lips the governor, hair lips all of Arkansas, hair lips the whole county, hair lips the south. (laughs) <laughs> hair lips everybody from here to Georgia and hair lips all the cats in Grimes County, wherever that is. Um, and Charles Augustus Lindbergh and Franklin Delano Roosevelt and I don't care if it hair lips the world. There we another go. one I've seen. So wow. this is a notion of defiance, which I'm going to do this regardless of what the consequences for other people are somebody right. important or somebody, somebody august. Yeah. And you'll uh-huh. notice here that in the list that we read out, there's a definitely a southern kind of I don't know, a southern notion to this is very much southern American term. This is not the kind of thing that is all that more, all that common in in the north. Well, we should point out, too, that um, many dictionaries will tell you that the term hair lip itself is offensive or somewhat offensive. Yeah, exactly. Right. Well, I got to tell you, Brian, that's everything I've got on hair lips, whoever, Brian. (laughs) Uh, As Martha noted, though, it's really, it's not the most sensitive of expressions because this is, uh, we try to be fair and nice about such things, so... Obviously. Be careful obviously. with this. And I, and I don't think he ever used it with any animus at all. I think it was just a, a funny expression that was part of his uh, background. Mm-hmm. Very colorful. Brian, thank you yeah. so much for calling. Well, thank you all so much. I really enjoy your show, and I'm glad to see that someone has picked up the uh, gauntlet after John Chiardi's absence from NPR. <laughs> oh, he was my inspiration back in the day. I loved listening Mine to him. Mine as well. Thanks, Mine Brian. Well, Brian, good words to you. <laughs> I'm John Thanks, Chiotti. you too. Great success. <laughs> Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Well, we love those colorful expressions from the South, don't we, Grant? We love no. colorful <laughs> expressions from anywhere. That's true. Well, we'd love to hear yours. Call us, 877-929-9673, or send it to us in email. The address is words at waywordradio.org. Things have come to a pretty pass.
That's all for today's broadcast, but don't wait till next week to chat with us on Facebook and Twitter, and you can find us on iTunes or SoundCloud. Check out our website, too, at waywardradio.org, where you'll find a dictionary, a newsletter, mobile apps, and a discussion forum. And you can listen to hundreds of past episodes for free. You can leave us a message anytime at 877-929-9673. Share your family's stories about language, or ask us to resolve language disputes at home, work, or in school. You can email us, too. That address is words at waywardradio.org. Our senior producer is Stephanie Levine. The show is directed and edited this week by Tim Felton. We have production help from James Ramsey. Away With Words is independently produced and distributed by Wayward, Inc., a nonprofit supported by listeners and organizations who believe in lifelong learning and better human communication. This show is coming to you from the Track Recording Center at Studio West in San Diego, California. Thanks for listening. I'm Martha Barnett. And I'm Grant Barrett. So long. Bye-bye. I like tomato, potato, potato, tomato, tomato. Let's call the whole thing off.